0: morning. Glad you're here to celebrate the resurrection with us today. We are uh, about to dig into a new message series and appreciate the band playing that song, Revolution. It wasn't a worship song. It was an illustration of how we really do want change in our life. That, That song came out in 1968. I was 11, so you can do the math. Uh, I'm an old guy, kinda compared to the rest of most of you guys <laughs> anyway. Um, but it came out in sixty eight during a decade that has left its mark on our culture in a big way we We wanted to overthrow stuff and here here's some of the words you say you want a revolution, well, you know we all want to change the world. You tell me that it's evolution? Well, you know we all want to change the world we're we're drawn to change in our natural state. You know we're born and and life is life it's got its ups and downs, and in the middle of life we we want change, and the Bible has the clear explanation of what's gone wrong and why we aren't satisfied in our with our lives to begin with and how we've kind of. Walked away from God, walked the other direction from him, and that's brought some things into the world that he never intended to be here. So revolution change really strikes a deep chord in our heart. I, I saw, uh, you know, the iPads out, and I saw a news, news thing on the iPad coming out, people lining up for, you know, losing sleep and long lines to be the first to have the iPad and I heard uh, uh, an interview by, with one of the ladies who was waiting in line. She said, you know, it's revolutionary. It's, it's amazing. And I think Conan O'Brien said, the iPad has revolutionized the way I use a calculator. That's what he said. So, you know, it's, it's really a, a different version of a previous device. Sorry, Apple. <clears throat> but, but we are drawn to new things, to revolution, to change. We're drawn to it. A revolution, the word is from the Latin revolutio, a turnaround. It's a fundamental change in power or organizational structures that takes place in a relatively short period of time. The reason we played that song, the reason we're talking about revolution is that Jesus started a revolution 2,000 years ago. And it continues today. His revolution starts in our heart. Those of us who decide to follow him, it starts in our heart and it works its way into every part of our lives as we continue to cooperate with him and work with him and and follow him as Lord and as boss. This is something Napoleon Bonaparte said. He said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires. But Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day, millions would die for him. Jesus Christ was more than a man. Now, Napoleon, he he started his revolution by force, but Jesus, his revolution is driven by the love that he has for, for people, by the love that God has. It's God who loved the world. And sent his son into it, so that we could get to God through his son, Jesus Christ. I'd like to show you a video clip from the movie Amistad. It's based on a true story, and this clip shows two men who are in uh, prison, awaiting a verdict. They they were on a, a slave ship, Amistad. They overthrew the ship. They got arrested for it, and they're awaiting their verdict. And in prison, one of the men has begun to sort of piece together the story of Jesus. I'd like you to watch this. They're going to show clips of the judge who is walking into a church. He's the judge that's going to bring the verdict. I just want to explain what's happening so you're not confused. But they they go back and forth between the judge who's going to pray and ask for wisdom on this decision and the men who are awaiting the verdict. Is I am you are totally free of course. So morning, Gawale. Jama Angar Tabao. A teamavele. Tabengava Vingiwe. Bom comme ça. Parce tingiwa ce moment-là, il y a des buelo eh buono. Confite a potente, Beate maria sempre Ti un mi Ti un si apie. A e qui ha tiepe Sanctus Apostos, Paolo, Omnes Sanctus Adonio, Mastro, Onibus, mimia beata maria pia This is a great example of how Jesus' revolution gets started in the hearts of people. Here are two men awaiting a verdict. And one of them is beginning to piecemeal the story together Uh, in a a language he doesn't completely understand. But he's putting the the story together. And there's such love in that story. There's such power that he's drawn toward the hope that Jesus Christ offers. The, The power of Christ, you know, revolution is a fundamental shift in power. The power of Christ is that his love and story breaks through whatever circumstances you're in, wherever you're at, he meets you and he wants to help you take the next steps down that road that brings real life, not only in eternity, but the best possible life here. Saul was a man in the first century who hunted down and killed early Christians hoping to squash the the movement that was started by Jesus Christ started out very slow or very small he Jesus spent 3 years with 12 men he he they watched him they learned from him and what he taught and what he did his miraculous Uh, healings and things. They begin to gather a crowd, so more and more people began to investigate. And after Jesus died and was raised, boy, it began to really expand rapidly. That was a threat to the people who were in power. And Saul was one of the guys. He was an up-and-coming, a rising leader in the religious political realm. And he was looking for Christians to take them out, to squash this movement of Christianity. As he was doing that, he was heading to Damascus one day, uh, and on his way to Damascus, he met the risen Lord. He met the risen Christ, and that revolutionized his life. So he, he did a turnaround, and he began not to seek out Christians to kill, but to seek out Christians to encourage. He learned, and then he began to help others learn about Christ, understand the story, and begin to follow him. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. We are ruled by the love of Christ now that we recognize that one man died for everyone. See, that's another. Jesus is in charge. He's in power now. That's what happens when you decide to follow him. He rules. Now that we recognize that one man died for everyone, which means that they all share in his death, he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but only for him who died and was raised to to life for their sake. That's, That's a revolutionary change in the power structure in a person's life. Paul now lived for those that he violently opposed. That happens time and time again as people begin to understand Jesus Christ, who he is, and the change that he wants to bring. As we allow him to rule, he makes a difference. Jesus' revolution, it starts within our hearts, and it works its way into every part of our lives. Here's the statement that we're going to look at today and then over the next several weeks in the rest of this message series. John 14:6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let me fill you in on the context of these words. Jesus' disciples, his, the 12 men who had decided to follow him, They were beginning to get worried because the the men in power, the establishment, were being threatened by Jesus' popularity. And so they began to come up with a scheme to kill him, to take him out, to squash the threat. And so the disciples were unsettled by this, and Jesus wants to offer some words of encouragement. And so Jesus begins to tell them, I am going to my father's house, and I'm going to my father's house, and there I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then after I'm finished preparing the place, I'm going to come and get you back to take you with me. You know the way I'm going. You know the way to where I'm going. He says that statement, and then Thomas, who's been accused of being doubting Thomas, I think he's just honest Thomas, Because he's, he's, he's sitting there. You ever been in a situation where somebody says something and you don't quite understand what they've said and you, you'd like to impress the people so you don't admit that you didn't understand what they just said and you can't connect the dot. And so you go on for several minutes clueless because you didn't say, hey, what'd you mean by that? I didn't quite understand that. You didn't get clarification. Well, Thomas was honest and humble enough to say, Jesus, I don't get it. You know, I don't, I don't know where you're going. What are, you, what are you talking about? I don't know the way. How can I know the way? I'm not even quite sure where you're going. Then, in response to that question, which Jesus and, and God wants our questions, he wants us to honestly investigate things. He doesn't want us to just act like we know what's going on. But he wants us, if we have questions, to ask those questions. He wants us to investigate. And in response to Thomas' honesty and humility and just being willing to admit, okay, maybe the other 11 get it, I don't get it, Jesus expands his revelation of himself with the statement that we read. And that's really how it works. If you'll honestly seek him, if you haven't yet committed your life to Christ, if you'll honestly question, ask the questions, try to get answers, try to understand, and ask God to speak to you and to show you, he will reveal himself to you in a very powerful and real way. Now, we, we hear that statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And in our day, we, we tend to react to that because... It seems so narrow, so exclusive, but if Jesus is really who he claimed to be, and we're going to look at who he claimed to be, and then we're going to look at some reasons to believe that he is who he said he was, if he really is who he claimed to be, then this statement isn't narrow. It's not exclusive. It's kind. It flows out of his kindness and his love. Because he wants his disciples, he wants you and I to know the way to the Father's house for eternity. He wants us to know that. If if I have the phone number of a doctor who could help you with a serious illness that you have, and I give you that number, and everything's correct except it's one digit off, you're not going to be able to reach that doctor. It's out of kindness that I give you the exact number to get to the doctor that can bring you the help that you need and want. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm giving you the number. I'm giving you the way to reach God. And if if there's only one way, then that's kindness. That's out of love. So if Jesus really is God, he's. this is not an exclusive statement. So let's look at who Jesus said he was. And then how we can begin to investigate, get questions answered, and how we can verify his identity. We're going to look at some ways. Jesus made his identity very clear from his, from his mindset. He was a historical figure. So we can look back at his life and his words and determine whether or not we think he was telling the truth. Sometimes people treat history and historical figures sort of like Mr. Potato Head dolls. You, know, you can change, you can give them eyeglasses, big ears, small ears, you know, mustache, take the mustache off. I mean, those those Mr. Potato Heads, they're fun to play with, but we can't do that with historical figures. And we have very, very reliable historical documents that show us who Jesus was, what he said, and allow us to decide for ourselves based on the history that we we have that's very reliable. So let's look at who Jesus said he was. First of all, he claimed to be God. This is an account from the Gospel of Matthew of a portion of Jesus' trial, Matthew 26, 63 through 66. Uh, At this point in the trial, Jesus remained silent. He hadn't defended himself to this point at all. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He is worthy of death. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. This was his mentality from early on. When he was 12, he and the family went to Jerusalem, and his parents lost him. They found him in the temple having a dialogue with the religious leaders. And when they came to to Jesus and said, hey, where have you been? he said, you should have known I was in my father's house. Now, he's speaking to his earthly parents, but he's talking about his father's house. Should have known I'd be here in the temple. Discussing this. He, he had this mentality that he was the Son of God from a very early age. Also, he forgave sin. That's something only God can do. Only God can do that. One time he was preaching at a home and everybody crowded into the home so much so that uh, some friends of a man who was paralyzed wanted to get their friend to Jesus because he had a reputation for healing. People And so what they did is they, they broke a hole in the roof of the house and they lowered him down to where Jesus was. And when he gets to where Jesus is, this is what Jesus says in Mark 2. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They had it right. And they're thinking, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Well, he thinks he's God. That's his understanding of his identity. This this is not the only time Jesus said something like this about forgiving sin. Next, he promised to give eternal life. John 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him very clear what Jesus was saying this is who he claimed to be claimed to be God finally he said that he would close out history and judge the world when history wraps up Matthew 25 when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory all the nations will be gathered before him And he will separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, he clearly understood that he was God, the judge, the ruler, the one who had the power to forgive. These claims, understanding what Jesus said about himself, understanding his identity, they removed the option of any middle ground. In your conclusion about Jesus' identity, many want to say that Jesus is a good and amazing moral teacher. He did much good in his lifetime. We want to stop there, but that's not a viable option. There are really only four viable options regarding Jesus' identity. First one is that he was lying, he was a liar. If he said these things and wasn't really God, he, he could have been lying. And if he was lying, then he wasn't a great moral teacher because he couldn't be a good moral teacher and be lying on the other hand. Uh, two, he was self-deceived. He just, he just thought he was God. He was somewhat deranged and, and didn't really understand his own identity. The problem is there was no evidence of neuroses or emotional imbalance that's normally found in deranged people. He, he was solid. In fact, when he was under the greatest amount of pressure is when he was the most calm. You see that in the trial. He remained silent. He didn't defend himself. He waited to speak until he was ready to say what he wanted to see. And then number three, his words are product of legend. Some people have tried to say that over the three or four centuries following Jesus' life and death, his followers put those words in his mouth. He didn't really say that he was God. He didn't really say that he would forgive sins. But his his followers embellished his words because they began to adore him. They began to worship him. He never intended that. But all of these biographies—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—they were written within the lifetime of Jesus' contemporaries. So, in other words, people could say whether or not the biographies were right; they were not challenged. Everybody understood what Jesus said and what he did. It would be sort of like, you know, somebody writing a biography on Reagan and. In the biography, they say, you know, actually, I was talking to Reagan one time, and he claimed to be God. It was amazing. Now, that's not true. We know that. We were alive. I was alive and paying attention to what Reagan was doing. So I know that he didn't say that. It's the same situation with the Gospels. You could verify what he actually said and what he did. And so that leads us to the fourth option, which is that he spoke the truth. If Jesus spoke the truth and he is God, which we have the ability to go back and decide for ourselves, then this statement isn't exclusive. It's not narrow. He was merely stating the way things really are. Jesus really is the only way to God if what he said is true. My house is on Blue Palm Lane in Diamond Bar. If you're going to get to my house and visit with me when I'm there, you have to get on the right road so that you arrive at my house. Jesus, out of kindness, is trying to show people the right road. I am it. I am the way. You follow me, and you arrive there. So let's look at some ways to determine Jesus' real identity, some some ways that we can begin to decipher through this. First of all, his character matched his claims. His life verifies his claims, and his character matched his claims. John 8, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? He's, he's challenging his opponents on his character. They couldn't accuse him. If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? John 18, this is at his trial in John 18. Pilate is looking at all the evidence against Jesus. He's the Roman governor who's who's presiding at his trial. And he says, what is truth, Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Even Jesus' enemies could not find a fault in him. They couldn't. He was innocent. Second, he demonstrated power over nature and sickness. You saw in the Amistad clip uh, the picture of him walking on water. He calmed a storm, the disciples were out on a boat trying to cross the sea, and he calmed the storm. You can read about that in Matthew 4. He fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fishes, he kept multiplying. Uh, you can read about that in Luke 9. And then, sort of the, the capstone of his miracles, he raised a friend from the dead, Lazarus. John. This is found in John 11. 1 through 48. You can you can read the whole story on your own, but he was friend of Mary, Martha and Lazarus, their brother. They called for him and they wanted him to come and heal him because he was very sick. Lazarus was sick and Jesus sort of took his time getting to the house. By the time he finally got to the house, Lazarus was dead and in the grave. And Mary and Martha are distraught. They they think they've just lost their brother. Well, Jesus goes to the grave, and he calls him out. He gets up out of his grave and walks to, to the outside. Now, some of the people who saw that event went to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they told them what Jesus had done. This is in John 11, 46, 48. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they ask. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were concerned about their position, their power, their place in society. And so they didn't deny. Notice they didn't deny that Jesus actually did the miracles. One of them saw Lazarus come out of the grave, and he, they couldn't deny what Jesus was doing. And so they tried to take him out because he was such a threat to their own lifestyle, to their own way of living. Third, his resurrection. You, you can take his resurrection into a, a sort of courtroom. Many, many skeptics have done this. They've looked at the evidence and weighed the evidence to decide whether or not it's true. But here's 1 Corinthians 15. It's it's a summary of the basic message of Christianity, 3 through 7. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. So you can go ask them. That's what he's saying. Go ask them. They saw him. They saw the risen Christ. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. This is the basic message of Christianity. And many men through the years and women have researched the resurrection. They've taken it into the courtroom. One of those was Josh McDowell. He wrote a book called Evidence that Demer- Demands a Verdict. He was a skeptic who was a law student, and he took the evidence into the courtroom and waited it out. He turned around from opposing Christ to following Christ. The evidence is there. So that's another reason. Fourth reason to believe, the fourth thing that verifies uh, Jesus' claims, is that he fulfilled prophecy. Um, Alex mentioned the the guest gift, and it's called prophecies of the passion. The passion is the last week of Jesus' life, from the time he entered Jerusalem to the, the, the day he raised from the dead. And there are many Old Testament prophecies that were written hundreds of years before the actual events took place. I'd like to show you just a very brief clip that gives you a feel for this this, uh, fulfilled prophecy. For two millennia, accounts of the passion of Christ and his atoning death have transcended language, culture, and nationality to touch countless lives in every corner of the world. It is not only the most compelling story in human history, it is probably the most well-known. Yet for all of its familiarity and spiritual significance, there is an aspect of this narrative that is often overlooked. An extraordinary fact that elevates the story beyond all others. For the events that took place in Gethsemane, along the streets of Jerusalem, and on the barren rock of Calvary, were foretold, often in meticulous detail centuries before they ever occurred when you do go into the Old Testament what we call the Old Testament of the Bible you really do see a description that unfolds in the events of the passion in other words you see a script that was written hundreds of years before the events took place and yet they unfolded exactly as what's foretold in those ancient writings I don't um, if you have questions about you, you're investigating Christianity, grab one of those. It's on the table straight through the double doors. Grab one of those DVDs. You, it'll, it'll help you in your investigation. But what's happening here and being laid out in that little clip is that this prophecy, there's only one being in the universe who can predict something hundreds of years ahead of time. That's God. That's the one who's ruling the universe, the one who made the universe and so this turns out to be fulfilled prophecy prophecy and it being fulfilled turns out to be god's method of authenticating his identity his reality listen to isaiah 42 8 through 9 i am the lord that is my name i will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols see the former things have taken place and the new things i declare before they spring into being I announce them to you. This is God's method of self-authentication. Prophecy that's fulfilled the way he said it would be. Finally, your own experience with Jesus today can confirm. It can confirm his identity. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Many times when men and women come around church life, they begin to get a taste of Jesus' story, his message. And it brings a tremendous amount of hope, just like those, those men in prison. They began to understand it, and there's, it's packed with hope and help to us. God speaks at a very deep level to our hearts to verify Jesus Identity and the reality of who he is. We're going to wrap up the message, and we're going to be receiving our offering uh, in a few moments. And I'd like to give you some ways to respond to this message, if, if you if you want. Here are some next steps that you could take as God leads you. First one: for the first time, I'm deciding to follow Christ. Maybe you've been investigating. You understand that Jesus is who he said he is, and you're ready to cross the line and commit yourself to follow Christ as Lord. You could let us know. That'd be great. We'd love to pray with you and support you in that. Second step, I want to seriously investigate the claims of Christ. I've listed some books at the bottom of your listing guide that you can use to investigate those claims. Uh one of them is More Than a Carpenter by the guy I mentioned, Josh McDowell, the skeptic who turned around. It's a it's these are cheater versions. This is a cheater version of the bigger book, The Evidence that Demands a Verdict, very thick book. He has more Evidence that Demands a Verdict, another very thick book. But this one is a small book that covers the basics that will help you get started in your investigation. More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. Um, Christianity, The Faith That Makes Sense by Dennis McCallum. It's it's an overview of God's method for self-authentication and how he fulfilled the prophecies uh, about uh, the Lord Jesus, they were fulfilled in Him, and then the case for Christ by Lee Sto- Sto- Strobel is another one. Uh, another step we take is if you already are a believer, you could decide that I'm going to get the answers to the basic questions so that I can share them with other people. That's another step you could take. I want to invite you back uh, next week and in the following weeks. If this has been helpful for you, I'm going to start. A, I'm going to continue this series, and we're going to look now at how Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and brings the best possible life uh, to us as we choose to follow him. Bring a, bring a friend with you as well. We'd love to have you back. Um, we're going to pray, and I'd like to ask the band and a choir is going to come sing for us now. First time that's ever been said in the history of Church in the Valley. We're going to have a choir. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that guides us. And the way you set things up so that we could really investigate your claims, Lord Jesus, I praise you and honor you for uh, just this day, the power that we find in the resurrection, the message that draws us toward hope. We can trust you, God. You've done what you said you would do, and we can rely on you. So, Father, I pray as we contemplate next steps in investigating you, and then those of us who have confirmed and decided, um, I pray that you give us the power to take the next steps in following you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.